Let me start by saying peace be with you. It's good to be with you this morning. If you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and pull it out or turn it on or however your Bible works for you. We're going to be in Psalm 96. Um, we're going to work through the passage together as, as we go, and we're not going to read it all up front uh, like we normally do. So switching it up on you just for a little bit. Um, but if you're new here, my name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. Pastor Jeremy is uh, taking the day off, and we're happy to give him the time off so that he can rest uh, and refuel because we're going to put him back to work soon. And uh, we're grateful for his, his ministry and his life. But we're going to be in Psalm 96 this morning. I'm going I'm to begin with a phrase because I heard last time I preached, someone said, you mentioned that you're either from Kansas or that you like barbecue in every single one of your sermons. So I promise I'm not going to mention that I'm from Kansas and I'm not going to mention anything about barbecue. Um, but I will start with a phrase that's very near and dear to my heart. And it's this, it says, let the joyous news be spread. The wicked old witch at last is dead. You know what that's from, right? You know, that's from the wizard of Oz. That's from Glinda. That's a pronouncement she made. She was of course, the good witch of the North. I grew up with this. This was my liturgy as a kid growing up. And she said that after Dorothy's house fell on the wicked witch of the East, killed her. And then what happened after that pronouncement was one of the most famous songs ever heard and the one that gets stuck in your head all day long. And you know how it goes. The munchkins come out immediately and they sing, ding dong, the witch is dead. Which old witch? The wicked witch. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. Now, it's, it's definitely not the best song you have ever heard, but it's an important song. It's a significant song because it's not uncommon. It's a good illustration because it's not uncommon to burst out into song after an important victory, right? That's why when you score a touchdown, there's a fight song. Well, this is the Munchkin's fight song, Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. A significant victory demanded a significant celebration. And last week, Pastor Jeremy brought a good word from 2 Samuel 6 his sermon on worship, and it was all about the story of King David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back from Israel's enemies to its home in the temple in Jerusalem. And there's this blowout bash. There's this parade and celebration, um, probably not unlike when Kansas City Chiefs brought the trophy back to Kansas City, the Super Bowl trophy. But this was way bigger, way more significant. And there was singing, and there was dancing, and the song that David had all of Israel sing was Psalm 96. You can read of it in 1 Chronicles 16. And so Psalm 96 is going to follow Jeremy's sermon last week on 2 Samuel 6. And so we're going to look at that. And I, I hope as we look at this, that you'll be reminded and encouraged that we spent all of last year really uh, preaching about and practicing renewal-seeking prayer. Because that's one of the things we want to be about is renewal-seeking prayer. We want to be a people of prayer, vibrant, passionate prayer. Uh, one of our um, favorite pastors, uh, Eugene Peterson, he's passed away now. This is what he said about prayer. He said, all true prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how much we suffer, no matter our doubts, no matter how angry we are or get, no matter how many times we've asked in de desperation or doubt, how long, prayer develops finally into praise. Everything finds its way to the doorstep of praise. 
So we've been about prayer. We're not going to stop being about prayer. But because we're about prayer, we also have to be about praise. We want to be a praying church. We also want to be a passionate, praising church, praising Jesus. And the praise of Jesus, we want to permeate our life together and be what constitutes our witness to Columbia and beyond. People who praise Jesus. And we're going to see that in Psalm 96 this morning. So let me begin by praying. And then with God's help, let's learn what he has for us in Psalm 96. Father, help us to be confronted by your word in this psalm this morning. Help us to see uh, why the psalmist is so excited about praising you. Uh, Please help us to change where we need to. And Father, I pray that my message and my preaching will not be with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that all of our faith here at Trinity might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the Psalms, I've often heard people say, and you may have heard it here at Trinity, that the Psalms are the prayer book of the church. And that's true to a certain degree, but the Psalms are literally the songbook of the church. And the great thing about singing is you can sing your prayers. And we just got done singing our prayers, and God wants us to sing our prayers to him. And Psalm 96 is no exception. It's a psalm of praise, and it's a song that has three verses. Three verses. And so there's going to be three sections to this sermon. You'll understand how it goes a little bit, but each verse builds on the next. And there's this grand crescendo. And at the end, I hope we get to experience it together. But each section begins with a call to worship or a call to praise, followed by the reasons why you should praise. It's in a section of Psalms in the book of Psalms called the enthronement Psalms or the kingship Psalms. It's all about how the Lord is king. And so it begins by telling you one thing about God and to praise him for who he is. And then it tells you why you should praise him. So that's, the, that's how we're going to flow through this passage this morning. So section one, starting from verse one, there's a call to praise. This verse one says, sing to the Lord, sing. Not say to the Lord. It says, sing to the Lord. It's a call to engage not only our minds, because it's God's revelation that's revealed this to us, but it's, it's a call to engage our hearts and our emotions. The language of singing is the language of affections. You don't sing unless you've been moved. And it's the language that we reformed types don't like so much. We're afraid to use. It's, a, it's, it's our F word. Okay, feelings. We don't we don't like feelings. We don't like to talk about our feelings. We don't like to express our feelings. We keep our hands in our pockets until the touchdown. And so the language of singing is the language of feeling. It's the language of emotion. It's the language of affection. And that's why you have love songs. You don't write love essays. You write love songs, poetry, because there's a language. There's an expression that comes out of the heart that makes its way out the lips in a way that just speaking cannot do. And so verse one says, sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord with all your heart. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Three times we're told to sing. 
We're to sing about what he's done, his works of salvation, his glory, his marvelous deeds. That's what we sing about, what he's accomplished. What God is doing in the world is worth singing about. And so we're to to declare it to everyone. Look at verses 2 and 3. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the people. That's what we're to do. Why are we to sing about what God has done? You ever think about that? Why? Why does God want us to sing? Why are we to praise his name and proclaim his salvation? Well, the psalmist tells us, he says, because our God is the real God. He's the creator God, and he's the savior God. But we don't just sing for those reasons. We sing because we're made in his image, and God himself sings. Prophet Zephaniah 3, verse 17 says this, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Our God is a singing God. Jesus said, we love because he first loved us. Well, it's also true that we sing loudly because he first sang loudly over us. Zephaniah chapter 3. So the psalmist then goes into this section where he's comparing the Lord, our Lord, the living God, to all these other gods of the nations, small g. And he says it's like comparing a lion to a a litter of kittens. You, You immediately spot the difference. There's no comparison. The nations worship lifeless idols who can't do anything, but the Lord God, he made the heavens. Verses four through six, look at those. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. The Lord, the psalmist says, he's the real deal. And so it's appropriate to sing to the living God because he can actually hear you. He's actually worthy of it. He has ears that can actually hear He has eyes that can actually see, and he can see you. Don't go praising stuff made of stone and wood that looks like it can see you, but it has no sight. And it looks like it can hear you, but it can't hear you. Praise the living God. The psalmist in Psalm 115 says it this way. It says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak, eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear, noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel, feet, but they don't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. That's how worship works. Whatever you worship, you eventually become like that thing. Whatever captures your attention, whatever excites your affections, eventually molds you into its image as you worship it. And we want to become more and more like Jesus. We want to be molded into his likeness. And so God has given us the gift of singing to help us get there, to help us be like Jesus. And so we sing, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. But there's even another reason to praise him. You see, the psalmist realizes that only God can save, and that's why he tells us to proclaim his salvation from day to day, his marvelous deeds. Sounds very similar to what the apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when he said, 
But you are a chosen people, speaking to the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare what? The praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, David was writing prior to Jesus coming on the cross. But on this side of the cross, we've seen the greatest salvation of all. We just celebrated Christmas, God coming to be with us, take on flesh, Emmanuel. The person of God has come to save. And he suffered death and he rose from the grave and he defeated sin and he broke the bonds of slavery it had over our lives. And only the real God can do this. Idols can't do this. Idols cannot do that. Idols cannot serve you. Jesus can serve you. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. Idols never do. And so he has made us. He has saved us. And so we sing, the psalmist says, we sing a new song. That's the first section. That's the first verse. Second verse. Here we go. Now, in the second part, there's another call to praise, because that's how this works. And then there's more reasons. So another call to praise. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, ascribe to the Lord. O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. So how do you do this? Verse 9. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Now, to Israel in the Old Testament, to come into the courts meant you come into the temple to worship God. And when you come into the temple to worship God, you better bring a sacrifice because that's where God dwells and he's holy and you're not. And so the psalmist is calling all the nations to come to the temple and worship him there. Every family, actually, every story in every nation. Imagine the diversity present there to come and to worship him. But again, on this side of the cross, with Jesus dying as a representative in our place, a sacrifice for our sin, it's not about us bringing anything to God as if to bless his name. It's about coming in faith and full repentance. It's worshiping God through Jesus. It's much more than singing in church, but it's not less. Singing is great. And it's really good. But through Christ, the psalmist says, you're to ascribe glory to God, do his name. Ascribe. That means give him what he's owed. You don't bring a sacrifice to the temple. You don't bring a sacrifice to the atrium. But you do, as Romans 12 said, offer your life as a living sacrifice. All of your life as a living sacrifice. You live in faith and obedience to Jesus. And that brings glory to God. This is a praise that not just involves your words. It's not just tell. It's also show. Show and tell. So as you live your life in obedience to the Lord, you give him glory to his name. As you choose patience over anger. Can I get an amen? COVID has destroyed my patience. This is not a joke. Maybe it has yours too. I don't really know how to get it back. You can pray for me but I have lost my patience time and time again. And I'm sad to say it, but when you choose patience over anger, you ascribe glory to Jesus' name. When you choose purity 
over immorality, which is everywhere, it's a very hard thing to do. When you choose purity over immorality, you ascribe glory to his name. And as you sing to the Lord, even when you don't feel like it, because most of us don't feel like singing to the Lord all the time. Even when you don't feel like it, when you sing to him, you give Jesus the glory do his name. As an example, when I was in high school, there were two worship leaders in our church. Um, they were pretty prominent um, people in our congregation. They always stood up to lead. It was a husband and wife. Um, and they had their first pregnancy, and their first pregnancy um, was twins, and everybody was super excited for them. Um, and as the pregnancy went on and on, it became clear that this was going to be really complicated, and it was going to be a dangerous delivery if there was going to be a delivery at all. Um, and so when the time came, they were actually taken by helicopter to the hospital because it was that serious. And when they got there, the delivery happened, and it was obvious that one of them, if not both of them, wasn't going to survive. And so it was just a matter of days before one of the twins passed away. It was a pretty traumatic and tragic event for everybody in our church, obviously, for this couple. Um, but it wasn't long afterwards, and I remember because I was in the praise band, that we were getting ready to lead one Sunday. We were not expecting them to be there because it was so soon after such an event. And they showed up and asked if they could sing. Um, and they wanted us to sing this song. Uh, you've probably heard it. We've sang it before. Blessed be your name. Anybody heard that song? You know what I'm talking about? Blessed be your name. And I remember both of them standing on the stage singing that line that comes from the book of Job that says, to the Lord, you give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And there was not a dry eye in that room. These people experienced significant loss. Most of which we won't ever have to imagine in our own lives. And here they are singing, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. And when we praise like that, when you praise like that, when you certainly don't feel like it, when there's tears in your eyes when you sing, you ascribe Jesus the glory due his name. Our praise of Jesus is a powerful witness to a world confused about who to worship, right? When you praise Jesus, it's a powerful witness to a world confused about who to worship. So here again, there's this call to praise. And then the psalmist gives us reasons for why we should do this. He says, why should God be praised? We praise him because the Lord reigns. That's really the crux of the psalm, and he's going to judge. Look at verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. That's why we're to ascribe him the glory due his name. Which brings us to the last verse. This is the last section of the psalm. In the last verse, there's actually this climax. And so not only are we supposed to be singing as individuals, sing to the Lord a new song. Not only are we supposed to be singing as a community, sing to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, but all of creation is supposed to join in here as well. All this time, this psalm, as, as we're reading it, is like a kettle that's boiling on the stove, and it's about to, it's about to sing. The kettle's about to, 
to whistle. It's like a choir that starts off with one soloist, and by the end, the whole choir is standing, and the praise is overwhelming. We're not the only ones who should be excited about God, the psalmist says. All of creation should be excited as well. Like we sang earlier, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice, and with us, sing. Oh, praise him. Look at verses 11 and 12. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that's in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest shout for joy. You see the the heavens and the earth and the sea and the trees and the grass and the fields, the ants, the elephants, the uncles, all join in to praise. Everyone is praising God. And it's the same pattern. Remember, there's this call to praise, and then there's the reason. Look at verse 13. Here's the reason. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Why? For he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The whole creation stands and rejoices because the Lord is coming. I remember when I was in middle school, seventh grade to be exact, Mr. Eubanks' class, Spanish. He was not a good teacher. Um, But I remember his class for other reasons, because whenever Mr. Eubanks would leave the class, he was close to retirement, so he left a lot. There was always chaos that broke out. There was always anarchy as soon as Mr. Eubanks left the class. Paper airplanes are flying, kids in the corner fighting, people running around. There's spit wads. Somebody in the other corners frantically copying down their homework that they forgot to do. Boys are flirting with girls. And, but there's always that one guy or girl, usually a guy in my memory, who stood by the door, and he had a very important job. He had a very, very most important job, in fact. And his one job was to keep his eye peeled for the corner. I can still see it in my mind. I remember like this, that old green tile. That was on the floor way back in the day. Anyway, he would, and his job is when he saw Mr. Eubanks come around the corner, what was he to do? He was the herald. He's coming! He's coming! And so he lets everybody else in the room know. And so everybody else gets back in their seats. They're all quiet. Mr. Eubanks comes in. And that was the end of it, right? His job was to be the herald and say, he's coming. Now, that's not exactly the picture of rejoicing that I have in my mind when I see Psalm 96, is it? That's not really a picture of celebration and praise. Never once do I remember my seventh grade class, Spanish class, rejoicing, saying, he's here, he's here, when Mr. Eubanks came back. Nobody said hooray when Mr. Eubanks came back. But that's the picture of Psalm 96. The psalmist is saying, he's coming, he's coming. And all of creation is saying, hooray, the king is here, he's coming. What's going on? What's going on here? Why is there rejoicing when God comes to judge? Well, going back to Mr. Eubanks' class, when you're on the floor and you've got five boys sitting on top of you, giving you noogies and punching you in the ribs, when you hear the words, he's coming, he's coming, you rejoice, don't you? Because those boys get off you and they get back in their seats. 
You rejoice because injustice is about to be made right. You rejoice because your rescuer has come. You rejoice because your nightmare is over. That's why you rejoice at his coming. When you ache at the sight of a world full of injustice, you will rejoice when God comes. When you long for righteousness and justice to be established, you will rejoice when God comes. The psalmist is saying, when you wait for the world to be restored where there's no longer any more crying or mourning or pain, you will rejoice when God comes. When you suffer day after day after day, you will rejoice when God comes. In fact, the psalmist says the whole creation is going to rejoice with you. And this idea is present in the New Testament as well. Romans chapter 8 tells us that creation is groaning, actually, as it waits for God to come and judge. All creation, when God returns, is going to be freed from its bondage and brought into glory. Let me read Romans 8, starting in verse 19 for you. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation is like that kid on the floor who's being held down, five boys sitting on top of him, and it leaps for joy when it hears the words, he's coming, he's coming. And the psalm is reminding us that God will come and he's going to judge. And he's going to judge righteously. That's good news to those who believe. Amen? That's good news for us. The Bible never once predicts judgment as a bad thing for those who believe. Yet we so often think of judgment as a bad thing. It's a reason to celebrate. I remember singing this song as a kid growing up in my old Baptist church. I don't know if you grew up in church, but I remember the adults singing this song. They would always say, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll what? Sing and shout the victory. That's very true, but we don't have to wait. The Bible doesn't encourage us to wait until we get to heaven. It is true that when you see Jesus for who he actually is, you will sing. The Bible's clear on that. But you don't have to wait. And the Bible's also not concerned with how good of a singer you are. The Bible doesn't give one lick to whether you think you're a good singer. In in doing some research on this sermon, 85% of Americans have been told by somebody in their life that they're not a good singer and that they shouldn't sing in some way, shape, or form. Maybe you were in choir when you were growing up and your teacher just said, you know what, just play this recorder or whatever it was. I don't know what it was. You had a colleague, a spouse, somebody told you you couldn't sing. And so you haven't flexed that muscle that God gave you to shape you into the image of Jesus for a long time. And maybe there's some sort of baggage you carry with that. Well, the scriptures just say, sing. In fact, they just tell you to make a joyful noise. Make melody to God in your heart. And whatever comes out your lips is just, you know, that's just extra. It's the melody to God in your heart that the Lord wants. Whether you're a good singer or not, 
does not matter because it is not the quality of your singing that blesses God. It's not the quality of your singing that gives praise to his name. It's not the quality of your singing that is a powerful witness to the world. It's the content of your song. It's not the quality of your singing. It's the content of your song that brings glory to God. And when you sing Christ, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if you think you're good. God will use it to shape you into the image of his son. And I think that's a good resolution for us. So really the only application to today's sermon is sing. Whether you feel like it or not, sing. God promises to use the singing of his people to bring the nations to himself. Singing is also a way that God uses to mold you into the image of his son. Because the Apostle Paul in both Ephesians and Colossians tells us that the way that you get the word of Christ to dwell in you richly is when you are together, you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, teaching and encouraging one another with those songs. When you know the stories of the people in this room, this is another plug to get into community groups. Because when you know someone's story, you know what's going on in their life and you see them show up and you see them sing the songs, when you know it's been rough for them and they're praising Jesus, that'll change you. That encourages you. When you walk out of here, I tell this to Jeremy all the time, and it includes me too because I preach sometimes too, but I said, you know what? People don't go out of here humming the three points to your sermon. They go out of here humming the songs that we sang. And that's important because singing is theology and Bible driven into your heart. You remember it. God's given it to us as a tool to change us into the image of Christ. And so we should sing. We should pray, but we should praise. I'm going to close with a hymn uh, that you've read before. It's not really a Christmas hymn, though we sing it a lot. You're going to know it right away. Um, It's actually a hymn about the second coming of Christ, and it's based on Psalm 96 and Psalm 98. It's 301 years old. Isaac Watts wrote it. You'll hear Psalm 96 as I read this. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more less sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Friends, let's, let's sing with our words, but let's, let's also sing with our lives. There's nobody that's greater than Jesus. Amen? Nobody more worthy of your praise and my praise than him. He rules the world with truth and grace. We need truth and we need grace. So let's, let's get excited about his return because you know what? When he comes, we're going to stand before him. And it's not just going to be us. It's not just going to be Columbia. It's going to be the multitude of people from every tribe and every nation who are going to be standing there. And you know what they're going to be doing? They're going to be praising They're going to be praising the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain before the foundation of the world so that you and I could be ransomed and enjoy God's presence forever. And it's not just us. All of creation is going to be 
praising the Lord. And I look forward to that day, and I hope you do too. Because Jesus reigns, and he's coming. He's coming. He's coming again to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples and he had a meal. We celebrate this meal every week. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. And he took a cup of wine after the meal and he gave thanks. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you. And his disciples take it and they drank it. And then after the meal, on his way to Gethsemane, before he was to be crucified, you know what they did? Matthew chapter 26. Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives to pray. The very first thing Jesus does after the Lord's Supper is sings a hymn. The Savior who knew he was going to die, he knew he was going to be crucified. Before he prays, he sings with his brothers to praise the Lord. For the joy that was set before him, he endured all of these things. And in order to do that, I think we must infer, in order for that to happen, he had to fill his heart with the truth about God, about who he is, about his loving kindness and his plan of salvation. So that before him, even though all the world was about to crumble, his heart would be full. He would take it to the cross for you and for me. We should sing to God. Jesus sings to God. And so as we prepare to take this meal, I want you to reflect on the fact that God sings over you. Jesus, in our presence, sings with us. He sang before he went to the cross. And through the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul tells us, we sing to one another in the Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs so that God can conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And so in a few minutes, when we start to sing, if you're a believer, we're going to ask you to join us in this meal where you take the cup and the wine, come back to your seats, and we'll, we'll take it together after our song. If you're not a believer, I encourage you to consider what it means to praise the Lord with your life. Um, if you don't know Jesus, we encourage you not to take the meal, but to take Christ. And if you don't know what that means, find someone and ask them. Come talk to me afterwards. would love to talk to you about that. So let me pray for us. We'll take some, moment, some moments together to sing, consider Christ and his work on, behalf, on our behalf, and then we'll close.